Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Adrienne Sharp about her latest novel, The Magnificent Esme Wells. Although set in the same time period as the other two novels I featured this year, The Magnificent Esme Wells could not be more different. It begins in a Las Vegas very unlike the city we know today, essentially not much more than a desert oasis with a small railway station and a highway passing by with Esme listening to her father discussing with the gangster Benny, a.k.a. Bugsy, Siegel, his plans to build the town's first casino, the Flamingo. The daughter of a would-be Hollywood starlet and a gambler small-time crook, Esme has a limited education, most of it acquired at racetracks and pawn shops. But she does know how to dance, and she definitely knows how to perform, as we discover by the end of the first chapter. First, though, we see Esme confronting the reality of Las Vegas. My father and I first drove out to Vegas with Benny Siegel in late summer 1945, all three of us covered with fine brown sand by the time we got there. We shook it from our clothes and our hair and swept it from the seats, the floor, even the dashboard of Mr. Siegel's little red coupe convertible. And when we were done sweeping, Mr. Siegel offered me his hand with its manicured nails to help me out of the cramped little back seat where no one but a child could possibly fit his face jubilant and eager as if he were about to show us some great prize. I jumped from the car, all excited, only to gaze with my father and Benny at the blank acres that held the ruins of some old motel where the Flamingo Club and hotel would soon be built. That was the prize, the unformed future. The landscape was otherwise empty except for the carcass of a prairie dog, a collapsed bundle of dull fur and bones. I looked around for something else to focus on, and when I found it, I squinted to see the shapes better. Not cacti, but the El Rancho and the Last Frontier. The casinos built before the war. The only things in sight, little specks far down the highway that would eventually be called the Strip. It took less than 30 minutes for my face to burn a deep red while Mr. Siegel and my father walked the site. I hadn't worn a hat, just one of my mother's big silk scarves. It was 70 degrees back in Los Angeles, but 105 here. I fanned myself futilely with my hands, while Mr. Siegel pointed out to my father where the hotel would lie. They were all smiles, the two of them, with their movie star faces, dark hair combed back, dapper in their Czech sports jackets. Jackets! Even as a child, I noticed that Mr. Siegel liked to surround himself with handsome, well-tailored men, the better to share his vision of a prosperous future. The war was over, he was telling my father. VJ Day, an explosion of flags and confetti and bonfires and cars with the letters VJ painted on them, cruising and honking their way down the Los Angeles streets. And now, according to Benny, every GI and his wife were going to be jumping into those cars looking for fun and adventure. And the town of Las Vegas was going to be that adventure, a glamorous destination, really. And now, please join me in welcoming Adrian Sharp. Hi, Adrian. I look forward to talking with you today. Thank you for having me. 
Before we get to your novels, tell us how you came to write fiction. Uh, you trained as a, a ballet dancer. Did you also dance professionally? And where and when and why did writing enter the picture? I was never a professional dancer, but I was what you would call a ballet girl. One of those little girls who by age seven becomes completely obsessed with dance and takes classes every single day on scholarship. I started off at Miss Ellen's School of Ballet in Baltimore and uh, was hooked. Um, the type of child that would create on my off time posters of dancers with pictures clipped from Dance Magazine, and I would uh, write a slogan across them, Dance is Life for those of us who choose it. In other words, just a kind of an overwrought uh, young ballet-obsessed girl. And my dad, driving me to classes, would say, you think dance is life, but dance isn't life. Literature is life. He had always wanted to be a writer. I ended up moving to New York when I was 17 to be a trainee to Harkness Ballet, uh, which was a two-year program where you one year studied and then the second year danced with the company. But unfortunately, the company folded about two months before I arrived in New York. So the entire experience was a little disconcerting. It was also my first time to be on my own, but instead of being at a college dorm, I was loose in the city, uh, studying with other really talented girls and with no one really taking a particular interest in me, I felt really lost. And I ended up taking the commuter train from Grand Central out to my friend's house in Stamford, where she was working on a little newspaper. And I went to her office in Stamford and we sat down in this little sloping eaved attic room and she was working on her news stories and I sat down with one of those ancient long rolls of paper that you used to write a news story on and sort of twirled it into the typewriter and began to write my first short story and I was hooked from that time on. And so your first work was this short story collection uh, called White Swan, Black Swan. Um, you published two ballet-focused novels, The Sleeping Beauty, which was originally titled First Love, and the two memoirs of Little Kay about Matilde Kuczynska, uh, the imperial prima ballerina Asoluta, who was mistress to the future emperor Nicholas II. I haven't had a chance to read the first two books. Can you tell us a bit about them and... What drew you to write those stories? And also in that process, how you mastered the craft of fiction and writing, whether you took courses or whatever. When I left New York, I ended up going to college and then from there on to an MFA program and uh, ultimately to a Henry Hoynes Fellowship at the University of Virginia, where I studied with uh, the great Peter Taylor. And all that time when I was writing, I was just writing stories about 20-somethings in love, um, sort of imitative of the writers that I was reading at the time. And I wrote a story about ballet dancers that Peter Taylor loved. And I went to his office to discuss it with him. He had um, beautiful white hair, uh, a little um, heating unit was on, and he had a Persian carpet. And he said, I think you need to consider what it is you want to say about this world and its demands, the landscape, the characters within it. And I had not thought about any of those things. 
And I thought, I don't know about any of those things. And why is he asking me to do this? I just wanted to write a little love story set between two ballet dancers. And so I left his office and put that story away. Um, It wasn't until maybe almost 10 years later when I had married and I had a child, maybe matured a little bit, had some perspective on life that I realized I did have a lot to say about that world after all that had been too close to me back then. And so I started to write stories about both fictional and famous figures in that ballet world of the 70s and the 80s. And in those stories, I'm examining exactly what Peter Teller asked me to look at. So under what conditions does genius flourish and how is it thwarted and what happens to ambition, both, um, you know, unmet and fulfilled what's the cost of this really consuming life where dancers literally only see the light of day when they arrive for uh, morning class and don't exit until they exit the theater that leaves them takes everything they have and then leaves them at the other end at age late 30s or 40s looking for a second career really demanding and and very intense and so it was a very interesting world to explore I will definitely look for those books I love that stuff um (laughs) and what about little Kay we'll call her that or Mathilde or Mala which was what her family called her uh, because there are only so many times I can say her last name without tripping over my own tongue um right She's been in the news recently because of the Russian movie about her being banned. Uh, but you published this novel back in 2010. At that time, she wasn't particularly well known um, in the United States, except maybe in the dance world. But I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't know that she was as famous as, say, Agrippina Vaganova because of the teaching methods and things like that, um, even though in her time, Mathilde was much better known. Um, How did you find out about her and what made you want to tell her story? Well, she was a huge figure in her time, as you say, with the Imperial Ballet and also because of her, you know, affair with uh, the heir to the throne, which was all the gossip of Petersburg at the time. I knew of her because I was just, as a ballet girl, a voracious reader and read every memoir and biography about every dancer um, so when I was casting around for uh, another book idea, she came to mind and a new biography had just been written of her. And then I pulled out her memoir again, Dancing in Petersburg. And I was struck by the hilarious omissions, uh, the lies she wrote, her defense of herself and her behavior, her like outrageous ambition. It was such a self-serving and hilarious memoir that, of course, I hadn't realized as a little girl just reading about the life in Petersburg that I thought this would be such fun to write a sort of a true memoir that is a memoir that's sort of just as self-serving but with even more fictions in it than she herself put in. And the biggest fiction I created is that the son she gave birth to, paternity still unknown, the one name was put on the birth certificate, uh, had the son, in fact, by the czar during a particularly troubled period of Nicholas's marriage to Alexandra when she was having miscarriages and a, a false pregnancy that went on for like eight months. And in my book, I have Nicholas sort of resume that affair 
with Matilda and have a child by her. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that it was, it really is wonderful. I mean, it's called the true memoirs of Little Kay, and yet it, it certainly has some truth in it. Let's put it that way. It's got truth in it and lots of fiction. <laughs> but she is such a character. So, you know, for people who don't know her, who aren't in the ballet world, could you tell us a bit about her um, as she's portrayed, especially in the early parts of her book? It's, it's not a spoiler that she lived to be almost 100 because uh, so many dancers do. It's, it's a great lifestyle in terms of your health. So we know that right away about her, that she's 99 when she sits down to pen this stuff. But um, t- tell us about her, which, what she means to you. Well, her father was a character dancer at the Imperial Ballet, which at that time was funded out of the Tsar's purse. So they had a company of hundreds of dancers, and some of them were classical dancers, some of them were character dancers. He was very well known. Like many of the dancers at the time, he gave ballroom lessons in his apartment. She got to know just about everybody in the theater world. And the theater world and the world of the court would merge because the Tsar and his family were very supportive of all the arts. And she met Nicholas when the family came to the graduation performance, her year as a senior. And she was seated next to Nicholas and immediately began to flirt with him. He, at the time, was so shy um, that he was taken with her, but not taken enough with her to pursue her. So she had to pursue him and basically put herself into his field of vision in every possible way that she could from driving the streets to walking the streets in front of the palace to eventually meeting up with him in the summer uh, where the regiment would uh, practice and there would be theater performances in the small theater at night. And that is where their affair really began. And she pursued it and him, even though he was reluctant to consummate the relationship And she tried everything she could to keep him from marrying Alexandra, including sending anonymous letters in her own handwriting, which Nicholas immediately recognized, uh, defiling him and telling Alexandra how horrible he was and she would be making a mistake by marrying him. But of course, he did marry Alexandra. And I don't think the two of them ever came in contact again, except through the occasional letter and his uh, visits to the theater where he saw her. But he clearly remembered her. He noted her in his uh, journals, which he kept uh, nights when she looked particularly beautiful or how long it had been since he'd seen her last. So I think probably in his tumultuous relationship with the high-strung Alexandra, he carried some small torch for Matilda And I just ran with her ambition because, of course, after her affair with Nicholas, she continued on to pursue other men in the imperial family who began to call her our Matilda because so many of them were involved with her in either friendship or romance. And, of course, you know, the relationship with the Tsarevich is really um, the most historical part of the story. And that's what has the Russian government upset about this movie and the Russian church, which is kind of hilarious, not only because, you know, most of the emperors married for political reasons, as most royalty does and did, and um, most of them had mistresses. So other than the fact that, you know, Nicholas has now been declared a saint, um, there's really nothing in his having had an affair as a young man that is at all surprising. 
Um, but I think you mentioned that they, at, at one point, your book was optioned for this movie, and they picked another script. I have to imagine that if they had made a movie out of the book, the church would have been even more upset about, uh, you know, the son who, um, who was the son of the czar and all of the rest of it. And in fact, that is what upset them about the script. <clears throat> so they didn't like the fictionalized aspects of the script, which are some of the things that gave the novel its engine and its drama, uh, particularly at the end of the book when she realizes she's made a big mistake in giving her son over to the czar and she's got to get him back because whether the czar realizes it or not, when he gets on that train to Siberia, he's going to his death. Um, I, I, David Weissman, the American producer of Kiss the Spider Woman, had a Russian-American partner who'd partnered up with a couple of different Russian producers, including Vladimir Vinokur, who's very close to Vladimir Putin, and he has a Vinokur fund uh, under the aegis of the Kremlin. And when Alexei Yuchitel, the director, was deciding to make this movie. He was having trouble finding a script or finding base material. David was looking around for material and he found my book, which he adored and immediately optioned and then had Paul Schrader of, you know, many famous movies, uh, write the script. And when this, I think there was a bit of a power struggle in that David and his producers had decided they didn't want Alexei Yuchitel to be the director of this movie. They were going to get a world-famous American director. And when this happened, there was a schism, and Schrader's script was rejected, and Putin was called in, and suddenly we were all out, and Uchitel was in with Vinokur, and, you know, the producers started suing each other in Russia, and eventually this film was made, which I have not yet seen, just clips or trailers of. It looks gorgeous, I have to say, just uh, beautiful, but I don't think it achieved what Yuchitel wanted, which was a wider audience, because the Russian church seemed to be wanting to protect Nicholas as saint and didn't want to see any depictions of him making love with Matilda and certainly would not want to see him having a child with Matilda. Uh, so I think the picture showed here in a couple of cities in December and seems to have vanished, which is um, a disappointment to everyone, I'm sure. Well, that's too bad. I hope it shows up on Amazon Prime or Netflix or somewhere. I would love to see it. And it's really <laughs> too bad. So, <laughs> so now it. my agent is, uh, you know, trying to sell it as a limited series to places like Netflix or HBO, where I think it could be a gorgeous. Actually, it's a very big story, a little hard to compress into two hours anyway. So we'll see. Maybe maybe Matilda will see light of day with an American audience. Oh, that would be wonderful. I mean, it's too bad they didn't have a better sense of humor because uh, Matilda's over-the-topness and her invention and her ambition and her, um, you know, her sheer love of life really are, are the best parts of the story, much more fun than than sticking too closely to the facts. But it's also a story <laughs> about the Russian Revolution, right? I mean, it's there's this whole background that you could, things that you could do with the story, um, uh, I think what made it so fun. Sorry. Well, she was like she was a a creature of her times and of a particular ordered society, 
And she really made the leap from the world of the theater to the world of the court um, in a very prominent way. And while other women were dismissed for having pregnancies out of wedlock and never really succeeded in moving so smoothly in court circles, Matilda, because of her Grand Duke protectors, really got to do what she wanted. And her child was slated to go to one of the you know, most esteemed academies in Russia and illegitimate children at that time, both men and women could find their place in society. It was not a rigid society. Um, but when the revolution came, she lost her place and even more painfully for her, because she was as ambitious for her son as she was for herself, he lost his place. And although they had to flee and settle in Paris for a very long time, the Romanovs hoped that the monarchy would be restored. And, and it wasn't. And it took them a long time to come to terms with this. I thought it was a painful fact that the white Russians would gather outside Paris to do military maneuvers and call out for a thousand more years of the reign of the Tsar, which would clearly never happen. So let's move on now to the magnificent Esme Wells, uh, which is being released today. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Although, as I mentioned in the introduction, Esme is also a dancer. She lives in a very different world from that of classical ballet. And much of the story actually takes place earlier than one would think from the first chapter that I or the part of the first chapter that I read. Um, it takes place in 1939 when Esme is six. Uh, we'll get into more detail about the various characters in a minute, but what made you decide to shift gears from Imperial Russia to Hollywood movies and Las Vegas casinos? I think it was still my interest in, in dance, which is a thread in this new book as well. I was always drawn to those showgirls in Vegas who have now been almost entirely replaced by Cirque du Soleil performers at every uh, venue. Every casino hotel has its Cirque performance. Um, I just found these showgirls creatures of display and elegance, and I wanted to sort of follow that thread into Vegas. So um, Esme is the daughter of Dina Wells and Ike Silver. Uh, tell us about them, starting with Dina. What is her background? What is she like? What does she want? She's the daughter of a very traditional Jewish man in Boyle Heights who owns a painting company and does house painting work. And like so many of the young women at that time, including my grandmother, she wanted to be a flapper. She had Marcel waves in her hair and bows on her shoes. And she wanted to be in the movies and she read movie magazines. And Busby Berkeley had just a few years before come out from Broadway to MGM and Warner's where he was starting to do his, you know, big shows, those big numbers in the musicals with a hundred girls all dressed identically, making those incredible patterns that he would film from the ceiling or from the floor or close up. And it wasn't too hard to be a Busby Berkeley girl in those days. And so I had Dina go to an audition. She was measured. She was pretty. She was hired. And she's on the lot every day, having a child, interfered a bit with her work, but she just dragged her kid along. And her husband was a kind of fast-talking, 
handsome, I'm going to help you fulfill your dreams kind of guy who ended up working the racetracks as a better and running into some low-level mobsters, including Mickey Cohen, who gave him his first job. And I think I see the two of them as big dreamers with the loss of the grandfather who died just before the story began. The two of them move out of Boyle Heights with their inheritance and just kind of start running around the city um, <laughs> and uh, spinning out of control. So they get married because Dina is pregnant with Esme, basically. Um, but mm-hmm. I do get the sense that there's a real relationship with them. I mean, between them, I mean, uh, because they do stay together. And and the, by the forties, it was possible to get divorced if if they had wanted to. But they, is it attraction? Is it dependence? Is it love? I mean, how would you define it? I think two things kept them together. I think it was their passion for each other. But I also think she needed the way her husband believed in her, like, baby, you're going to make it and I'm going to make your dreams come true. And whenever their marriage seems to falter, he comes through with a new idea. So when her screen test doesn't go well at MGM, he's like, look, Mickey Cohen's opening up this club on Sunset and I've got you a gig there and you're going to be dancing there. So he seems to always um, bring her up the ladder. There's one more step here. Let me get you up onto this next step. So he's almost a manager for her. I think if their marriage had lasted longer, there would have been more trouble if Dina wasn't getting what she wanted. But he is emotionally supportive, even if he's not terribly good at the financial support part. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) True. He's had to pawn her wedding ring and her diamond way too many times. <laughs> that must get old. <laughs> so what if Esme, what is her life like at six? You mentioned she gets dragged to um, her mother's uh, studio lots and stuff like that. What else? What I love about this character is that she's, she's not entirely unlike Matilda in that she's very scrappy observant and ambitious and kind of determined to get what she wants, which when she's a little girl is simply stability for her family and to have her parents stop fighting. So the problem is she's school age now, but her parents are so reckless and self-involved so much so that they don't even bathe her enough. So she ends up getting, um, you know, uh, rashes and, and has to be treated by a doctor Uh, And she's always hungry because they're not concerned with when should she eat and she eats way too many hot dogs as a result. And so her life is um, accompanying her mom to sound stages where she gets to see great stars performing their song and dance numbers or going to Hollywood Park with her dad and, you know, sitting with him in what they call the study hall, which is a little room off the uh, main lobby where you can sit and look at your tip sheets and plan the horses you're going to bet on. And she knows everybody on the lot and she knows everybody at the racetrack and she doesn't ever see the inside of a school. Yeah, there's a strange combination of chaos and predictability, I guess, in her life. Um, I did notice the resemblance in character to Mathilde, although Esme, perhaps because she's so much younger when we meet her, seems to me to have a level of vulnerability, emotional vulnerability that Mathilde perhaps doesn't. 
Matilda had the benefit of an entirely solid family who cared for her and educated her and backed her up or reproved her when needed. And um, Esme has none of that. And yet the two of them are both what I would call opportunists. In, in fact, that was the line that kind of broke open uh, Matilda's story for me when I wrote this line. I have always admired an opportunist being one myself. And that's Matilda. And it's also Esme, although Esme's is a little bit more out of desperation to hold her family together in the craziness of that L.A. world. When they move out to Vegas, she becomes a more conscious opportunist, I think. Yes, I think she does. So Esme also takes dance lessons herself, um, and this sets her up for life in Las Vegas. Uh, tell us about her experiences at the Flamingo and her relationship with Benny Siegel. I think she doesn't really realize exactly who Ben is. Uh, she sees him as a benevolent second father, somebody much more successful than her father is, who brings her treats and has the pool dug for her so she can swim while the construction is going on all around them. I don't think she realizes until much later, until she's had her own first sexual experience with Nate Stein, that in fact, Ben was grooming her to possibly be his lover or mistress later, although he's killed before that can happen while she's still young. But she loves him and she mourns him when he's gone. And where does her own father fit into this? I think Esme comes to see him as a very hapless person, uh, one who needs her help. Uh, the beneficiary of, of her contacts and networking. She doesn't see that her father is seeing this dangerous evolution of both Vegas and the evolution that's a little dangerous in her own life. And she just disregards her father's warnings uh, and, and continues blundering forward in what she thinks is uh, uh, a maneuver toward, you know, power and autonomy for herself and for her dad. So um, you mentioned Nate Stein, and I was, I know a lot about Imperial Russia. I know practically nothing about the founding of Las Vegas. So I don't <laughs> even know if Nate Stein is a real person or whether he's your invented character. But can you talk about him either how you use the historical character or how you invented him as the, shall we call him, the foil for Esme in this, um, in this novel? I think he is a composite of so many of these really intelligent, ambitious, ruthless, and really impatient men. The kind of men who a couple decades earlier came out to Hollywood They'd been dealing in rags and scrap metal and then bought up vaudeville houses and turned them into Nickelodeon houses and then had to make films for those houses. And they became the great Jewish moguls of Hollywood, the Laskies and the Warners and the Foxes and um, Goldwyn and Mayer. And it was the same set of these kind of men who ended up going out to Las Vegas, which I originally thought was all Italian-American mobsters had gone out there and built that city. It's kind of surprised to find it was not. It was really Jewish mobsters and racketeers who moved out there. Mickey Cohen and Mayor Lansky had 
early investments in the downtown area of Vegas, the Glitter Gulch. And then this new influx of men started building all these hotels, the Desert Inn, the Flamingo, the Dunes, the Sahara, all those things that would become the Strip. So this was almost, uh, if Hollywood was one empire of their own, Vegas became another empire of their own, but they were really city builders in Vegas because Vegas had hardly anything there. So they got to build not only their hotels and casinos, but also neighborhoods and office buildings and shopping malls and hospitals. They basically built a city. So Stein plays a huge role in Esme's life um, as she moves into her late teens. You mentioned that he initiates her sexually. And I'm sure you don't want to tell us everything about um, either them or their relationship. Um, but do set the stage for us what, what he means uh, in terms of Esme's growth. Um, they meet at a rehearsal for the floor show for the Flamingo, which had been closed by Meyer Lansky, who said, why is this casino losing so much money? Bugsy Siegel had it open for just a few months and it was hemorrhaging money. So he flew out with a couple of associates to go through every single thing about the Flamingo from the books to the floor show. So in the scene where Nate Stein meets Esme Silver, soon to adopt the stage name Esme Wells, she's watching the floor show. The Andrews sisters are singing and she starts dancing over the side, doing a dance that's a little more provocative than what the Andrews sisters are doing. And she's thinking we need something new in Vegas. Vegas is different. This is the same kind of stuff that the Andrews sisters have been doing for a long time. And she notices that Nate Stein keeps looking at her. And then after the rehearsal, he asks Ben Siegel to introduce them. And Ben is reluctant because he can only imagine what Nate Stein has in mind. And the two of them have one of those immediate sparks where they shake hands, but it feels like something much more than shaking hands. And it's the beginning of a very slow courtship because Nate is, of course, still married. And he's not as reckless and impulsive as Ben Siegel is, who doesn't care whether he's married or anybody else is. And she, Esme, slowly comes to trust and rely on and be flattered by and ultimately see Nate as a way to gain some power of her own, much as Matilda used the men around her to gain power and autonomy for herself. Esme is also working in a world where men hold the power and women need to ask men to give them some. Yes, and I guess she has, in a sense, she has her mother as a model in that sense also, but Esme is much more successful because she picks someone who himself is much more successful. He's... Um, more powerful. He ha he's not a movie star on contract. Um, he can make decisions about what goes on in Vegas. And when she says, after seeing Lily St. Cyr perform at the El Rancho, I want to do that. She realizes that Nate can make that happen for her. And he seems to be delighted and amused by her ambition and grants her 
almost whatever she asks for. Uh, to switch gears just a little bit, um, there are many famous people who flit through this novel, sort of cameo appearances. Um, mm -hmm. There's Busby Berkeley and Louis B. Mayer, whom you mentioned, but also Mickey Rooney and Julie Goller and uh, Judy Garland and Clark Gable and Robert Taylor. And that's just the tip of the Hollywood pyramid. There are all these people in Vegas as well. So was that's it right. fun working all these celebrities into your piece? How did you go about it? The most fun for me, both for all the other books I've written and this book, is dovetailing the action of my characters with the actions of the celebrities at that time and place. So it's a matter of finding what movie was being made on what lot at what time with what people that Esme's mother could be performing in and that Esme herself could go see. And what horses were running at the track and who visited the track at what time and how and why, and then can I bring my characters into that? And it was the same kind of dovetailing that went on with Little K. What was happening in Russia at that time, with the imperial family at that time, with the theater at that time, and how can I draw my characters together to drop them down into particular scenes? And where do you find that information? You start with your first source, and then one source leads to another source. When I first started researching Matilda, I thought... I will never get this royal family sorted out. I will never get any of it sorted out. But by the time I had finished reading every single book and article I could find, um, I could start looking at photographs and seeing uh, figures who had been misidentified. That's not the Grand Duke, this one. It's the Grand Duke, that one. They've got it wrong. So it's just, you have to be patient and allow yourself time to slowly become familiar with the figures and the houses and the rhythms of the place that you're describing. One thing that was very helpful for me in writing the Esme book is the photographic archives and at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and USC. I used each one for each city. And for me, when I can see a place as it looked then, then I can write about it. I think what's hard about writing historical fiction is to not stuff it too full of the details that you found so that it starts to feel like an encyclopedia of the time rather than just characters living in that time. And so I remember in my early draft when I had Esme in the opening as you describe seeing the Flamingo site for the first time, I wanted to put in all these details about the depot and the auctioning off the land and how they brought out blocks of ice to keep it cool enough so people could stand out there under the tents and bid. And my daughter read it over and she said, Mom, I just think you have too much stuff in there, like those blocks of ice. And my husband, who was in the next room, overheard her and he calls out, a, I told you to take out those blocks of ice. So it's sort of that kind of thing where you want to create the landscape, but you you don't want it to be a history lesson. Right. Yes, exactly. I think it helps when you get to that point where you're just so saturated in the information. It's It starts to become like the modern world and your own life, and you can just kind of pick it up and put it down. But my husband, too, says, don't be such a expletive deleted historian <laughs> <laughs> it's all about story that's right. the thing it's all about your characters moving forward don't yeah. let the landscape totally take it over right absolutely so 
Um, are there any favorite elements or characters from the novel that we haven't covered or even the previous novels? I, I think uh, for me, for both novels, the place, I'm, I love the California Nevada deserts. They are more beautiful to me than even the ocean, which my family can understand. And so I think uh, I, I love that place. It's, and, and the idea of building a little city in this vast valley is fascinating to me. Yeah, they they are extraordinarily beautiful. I remember driving through them. Um, I went to graduate school in California, and when we came back, we drove all the way through um, Arizona and New Mexico and um, that whole area. And it's it's really the silence and the space. It's almost like being on another planet in some ways. Absolutely, that's exactly it. So, what would you like readers to take away from the magnificent Esme Wells? Well, I hope they have fun because it's a fun book, but I also feel like Esme is magnificent, not because she becomes uh, the first burlesque artist on the strip, but because in my mind, she's uh, working her way toward uh, morality or a moral compass after a young life that's been seeped in anything but morality. And what are you working on now? Right now, I'm almost finishing a novel. It's set in 1975, and it's about my murdered ex-boyfriend and his charismatic family. So I guess it's another historical. By now, 1975 is historical. Pretty much, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I feel like a dinosaur, not because of what you said, but just in general, it's like, (laughs) sure. (laughs) You know, my kid looks at me and it's like, they did what? <laughs> they <laughs> dialed phones with their fingers? Or <laughs> so, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time with us, Adrian. It's been a pleasure. A great pleasure for me as well. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. And today I've been talking with Adrian Sharp about her novels, especially The Magnificent Esme Wells, released in April 2018. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cpdesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.